day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday morning. Thanks for joining us. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. Of course, we got to recap the draft. Bills, they went defense again. Not surprising. Weakness of their team. So for the Bills to do that, you would expect them to go defense. We're going to talk baseball. I promised you the Yankees would be back to 500, didn't I? If you listened, I got that one right. That's one. And we got to talk about what happened last night with the Sabres because it's a pretty cool moment in Sabres history. So let's start with the, the draft, and let's start with the Bills draft. And Gregory Russo goes number goes in the first round, number 30. Look, before we even start, I got to qualify. Only four teams had less draft capital than the Bills. So this wasn't going to be a draft that we were going to look at and go, wow, this is great. And and frankly, whenever you look back at a draft a couple days after, you're going to kind of grade based on hypothesis without any basis of knowledge. Look, last year the Titans selected a tackle in round one. That kid – is out of football right now. People loved that pick and people didn't like that pick at the time. But the point being, we think we know what's going to happen based on the game tape. But these are young men who, young men do stupid things sometimes. Young men aren't prepared sometimes to handle what goes their way. Now all of a sudden, Young men who may not be prepared are going to have a lot of money and a lot of people around them and a lot of people wanting things. How do they handle that? So it's hard for me to to grade a draft right after the fact. You can like the theory of the draft. And, you know, frankly, I didn't like the theory of the Bills draft. I really did not. We talked last week. Brandon Bean, in my opinion, had three choices. Stay put and see what falls to him and, the fact that they're a good team and drafting for depth, take what's there. He could trade up and target a specific player that can make an impact this year. Let's face it. The Bills are going to be a team that people are going to pick to go deep this year, maybe even to the Super Bowl. So, you know, that wouldn't have been a bad theory. Or trade down, accumulate more picks, and try to build more depth. Well, they stayed where they were, and Gregory Russo was their pick. He is an edge rusher from Miami, long, athletic, undersized, opted out last year. Last time he was on the football field was the 2019 season. He had 15 sacks in that year. Now, you look at that and you think, wow, this guy's a sack machine. But he doesn't really have great pass rushing skills. He's more athletic than he is of a pass rusher. That can translate, and and being coached up can go a long way. He may be too light to play the position, but one of the all-time great pass rushers was a guy, Jason Taylor, who was about 245 pounds. Now, I never like comparing somebody to the outlier. You know, Ed Oliver was going to be the next Aaron Donald. Well, that hasn't happened. There's only one Aaron Donald. There's only one Jason Taylor. Gregory Russo is going to give the Bills depth at a position that 
they've invested a lot. Before I get into the draft, I got, I, before I get into the people, what bothers me the most about this is Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott put such a premium on the front seven defensively and so far have not really succeeded in building that up regard, in spite of what they've invested in it. Three first-round picks. Remember, this is now the fifth draft that the two of them, well, McDermott had the first one. Brandon Bean said the last four. It's the fifth time they've gotten together for a draft. Three first-round picks in that in that front seven, in Trey Edmonds, Ed Oliver, and now Rousseau. They've also spent two seconds. Last year's first pick, of course, first-round pick was traded to the Vikings, and they didn't have a pick. A.J. Appenenza, edge rusher from Iowa, was the next pick. This year, Boogie Basham is a, a second-round pick. So three firsts and two seconds on the D-line and linebacker position. They also just re up Matt Milano to a big contract. Remember, they brought in Star Latule. He comes back this year, and I think that's a good thing. But that's a lot of money there. Mario Addison, Vernon Butler, big contracts on that defensive line. And Jerry Hughes is one of the highest paid players on the team. And Hughes predates McDermott and Bean, but you get the point. Overall, $61.5 million roughly will be spent this year on the front seven in a year where the cap is around $180 million. That's 35% of your cap, roughly. You're spending 35% in an area that happens to be the weakest on the team. To me, that's a poor allocation of resources. You're not doing a good job of evaluating talent or coaching up talent. One or the other is not being done. Because if you're spending premium picks and you're spending premium money, you should have better results. And it simply isn't happening. So because of that, I'm a little nervous about the fact that the Bills went edge rusher one and two. And again, both of these guys could turn out to be what the Bills hope and and move in to replace Addison and Hughes likely after this year. That would give them Basham, not Bashaw, Basham, Russo, and Epinenza as a three-man rotation at the defensive end position after this season. So they'd be in good shape if they turn out. Now, last year, A.J. Epinenza had a hard time getting on the field. When he did, he made a few plays, but there wasn't a whole lot there that you look at and go, this guy's going to be a star. He might be a good player, but even Ed Oliver, who was the ninth overall pick, he's been a good player. Nobody's calling Ed Oliver a star yet. And I think if you're drafted in the top 10, if you're not somebody who's automatically you're going to be a guy that you pick up that fifth-year option without thinking about it, you're a bust, in my opinion. And Ed Oliver right now, there's going to be a discussion a year from now whether or not that's going to happen. Is that fifth-year option going to be picked up? The Bills did pick up Tremaine Edmonds' option. There was some discussion there, which to me leads to the fact that I don't think Edmonds 
is panning out as a pick that the Bills thought he was going to be. Everyone points out how young he is, and several of this year's draft picks are actually older than Tremaine Edmonds. Okay, he's been three years in the league. We've seen marginal improvement. You need to see more. I, I don't see any scenario where this kid all of a sudden becomes a star in the league. Good player? Yes, absolutely he's a good player. But you don't pay $13 million for a guy to be a good player. That's what the Bills are doing, which remained Edmonds next year. They picked up that option, $12.7 million. So go back to this year's draft. The first two picks, edge rushers, it's both, to me, are a bit of a reach. Not guys who are going to contribute this year. Not guys who are going to be big impact players, likely. Similar to Appenanza last year. Guys that you'll see and you'll see a flash of, but more than likely, they're depth players. Without an injury to Addison or Hughes, these guys get on the field a little bit, maybe make a few plays, but they are projects. And I, I don't know that you draft projects when you're on the cusp of winning the Super Bowl. I'd rather the Bills package a bunch of picks, move up, get an impact player to help them get over the hump. Third round, they took a tackle. Massive kid, Spencer Brown. Jumped through a table. Bills Mafia already loves him. Kid comes from northern Iowa. I think this is potentially a smart pick because, again, depth at the tackle position. Darrell Williams, Deion Dawkins, going to be the day one starters. But an injury, Matt Ryan Bates was going to be your guy there. Now, potentially, Brown gets an opportunity to be the swing tackle and give the Bills something depth-wise going forward. They end up taking another tackle in the fifth round, Tommy Doyle, kid from Miami of Ohio, another 6'8 dude. The, the Bills definitely went for size this year. They took a wide receiver from Houston, Marquez Stevenson. He's going to be a kick returner at best. Very fast kid. People like him. People think he could be a player. Then they went safety for Pitt, DeMar Hamlin. They took a cornerback from Wisconsin, Rashad Wild Goose. They finished up with a guard from Texas Tech in the, the name of Jack Anderson. So there's some depth here. There's some potential here. But I don't think this draft class is in any way going to impact this year's team. I don't think it's going to be something we look back on and are feeling very good about as you go forward. As a matter of fact, it kind of reminded me, and and Bills fans, I, I don't want to do this, but I feel I have to. The Bills were really good in the 90s, and they were able to continually replace players and Bill Polian and then John Butler as GMs did a great job in the draft. But there was a draft that signified a change. And it was one of the worst drafts in history. And the year 2000, the Bills were coming off a year which they had made the playoffs once again. And they were very solid. And the Bills drafted defensive end Eric Flowers out of Arizona State. In the first round, Eric Flowers was the ultimate bust. Tavares Tillman was the second round pick. He actually played a few years for the Bills and was a solid player. Corey Moore was a linebacker from Virginia Tech. 
undersized, was going to be a great pass rusher, never turned out. He had one sack in his NFL career. He paid, played actually 10 games. Avion Black was a wide receiver who caught 14 passes in his career. Now, Sammy Morris ended up being a solid running back. Leif Larson was going to be a project who was going to be a great D-tackle. Never panned out. Drew Hadded, wide receiver from Buffalo, never really panned out. He had a catch, literally one. And Deshaun Polk was another linebacker who ended up with four and a half sacks. He was maybe <laughs> the best player other than Sammy Morris in this draft class. But this draft class ended up signifying the end of an era. It showed that the Bills needed to do better. And, and because of this draft class failing so miserably, and again, this is a team that won 11 games the year before, you're drafting for depth. But sometimes when you draft for depth, you're more likely to reach. And that reach doesn't always pan out. And it didn't in 2000. And it ended up beginning the cycle of what we now know was a 20-year playoff drought. I'm not saying this draft class is like that in that it's not going to succeed, but it just reminds me of it. It's a different theory when you're drafting for depth, and you've got to be careful. You know, look at this year coming up. The front seven, has it improved? The only way the front seven improves is Starla Tulele is back. That should make Ed Oliver better. You get guys like Oliver and A.J. Epinenza a year under their belt to be better, and maybe one of these young kids hits. But other than that, the front seven's the same. I, I don't see a big improvement in the weakest part of the Bills team going into this year. The defensive backfield, you still don't really have somebody you're all that confident in out opposite Tredavious White. Dane Jackson showed things last year. Maybe he can unseat Levi Wallace and become the starter there. Maybe that's your improvement. If not, you're running back on defense, and that defense wasn't very good. Offensively, you're running it back as well. Because what have you really added to the offense? If you think about it, you got Brian Dayball back, and obviously Josh Allen is coming back. And What's Josh going to be this year? Is he going to take another step forward, or is he going to maintain even? If he maintains, to me, that's a win. I don't expect him to take another step forward. The running game with Singletary and Moss remains a question mark. And until they get it done, it's going to be a question mark. The tight end position is arguably worse. You lose Tyler Croft. You lose Lee Smith. So you've left, lost the veteran leadership from that room and the depth from that room. The wide receiver position, you lose John Brown. You hope Gabriel, Gabriel Davis is able to elevate. And to me, the key to this whole thing next year is going to be the offensive line. I, I already talked about the tackles, Williams and Dawkins. I like them. I think they're very solid. I, I think John Feliciano's a better center than guard. Mitch Morris may be the second-best center on the team, but because – Feliciano has to play guard. Morrison, his big contract, will still be at center. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I don't think it's a great thing either. And then the other guard position, Ike Bodiger, who's resigned this week, or is it Cody Ford, who's been a bust? 
so far. Who's going to man that? And how is that offensive line, especially the interior of it, improved to help the running game? So is the same Bills team this year going to be good enough? Well, you look around the East, the East got a lot better. And I'm going to talk about the rest of the, the league. The East got a lot better with this draft. It, it was a good week for the AFC East. I don't think that's a good week for the Bills. In conclusion with the Bills, hopefully one of these guys hits. That's the biggest thing because there's nobody I look at that I could say this guy is going to be a player who's going to do X, Y, and Z. I have zero feel for any guy in this draft class that's going to come in and contribute not only right away but kind of long term. Because they're all such mysteries that I don't think any of them are are a guy that you're going to look at and say, this guy could step on the field day one and contribute. I, I simply don't see that guy in this draft class. A couple of years from now, we might see a guy who pans out. But this is a team built to win now. And I, I didn't think this was a class that's going to help that happen. So the Bills, I, 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 I'm not grading it, but I don't like it. I, I hope that I'm wrong. I just have very little confidence in Brandon Bean when it comes to the front seven defensively. When you spend that much on the front seven, the first two picks, you've lost my interest in the draft. I, I just think you continue to throw things against the wall, hoping something sticks, and thus far, nothing has, in my opinion. It's, it's not real good. So, Bills are going to be a very good team this year. This draft class is not going to have anything to do with that, in my opinion. We'll see. Hopefully, I'm wrong, and hopefully, Gregory Russo or Boogie Basham ends up being an excellent pass rusher, and it changes the defense. That would be great. I just don't believe it's going to happen especially this year in a year when you have a chance to possibly win a Super Bowl. So a little disappointed by the Bills draft class. The draft was interesting in that the five quarterbacks went in the first round, went in the top 15 picks, made it interesting. Anytime you're talking about quarterbacks, it's a, it's, it's a fun way to have a conversation. The draft Quarterback-wise, is going to be looked back on similar to the 2017 draft when Allen and Lamar Jackson and those guys went. This draft class will be the same. Trevor Lawrence undoubtedly was going to go number one, and he did. Jacksonville now has, in my opinion, the second-best quarterback in the history of their franchise, Mark Brunel being the best. Trevor Lawrence, I think, will end up turning that franchise around because he is that good. I think he's the one guy in this draft class that you look at and you say, day one, we're a better team because of him. The Jets picking second took Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson's going to either make or break Joe Douglas's career. And it's unfortunate because I think Joe Douglas, outside of Zach Wilson, did a very good job in this draft. I'll talk more about that in a second. But Zach Wilson's coming from BYU, a one-year starter, wasn't a captain, 
I didn't love the selfie in the bathroom mirror. I, I thought that was a little arrogant and a little immature. He didn't look comfortable. I, I just, I don't want to go all body language, but this guy's going to New York. He's got to be Teflon. He's got to be able to withstand all the criticisms and all the questions. And he just looked like a young kid who was trying to be pretty as opposed to somebody who is self-assured and ready to go. Uh, he's going to make or break the Jets franchise for the next four years. I, I don't know what to expect from him, but I hope he has a better chance to succeed than Sam Darnold did. And I think Joe Douglas has already done a better job of putting people around Zach Wilson than they did, and it wasn't Joe Douglas, with Sam Darnold. Trey Lance went number three. For for weeks we had been hearing Mac Jones to the Niners. Ends up being Trey Lance, the kid from South North Dakota State. Lance is interesting because he's – a Josh Allen-type player coming into the league. Raw, athletic, big arm, can do all the things you want. This is a guy who I think if Kyle Shanahan coaches him up, and he will, has a chance to be really special because of his athletic traits. And I think the Niners also have done a good job of putting people around Trey Lance to allow him to succeed. He goes in with one of the two best tight ends in the league, George Kittle, immediately. So that'll help him. He, he could learn from Jimmy Garoppolo and, and sit a little bit and kind of do the Patrick Mahomes, Alex Smith thing. The Niners did the right thing, in my opinion, drafting Jamar Chase. The Chicago Bears traded up with the Giants to take Justin Fields at number 11. You look at the Bears in their history of quarterbacks. And I'll just throw this out. Best quarterback in Bears history is Jim McMahon, probably. And McMahon might have been better if he didn't get hurt by Tim Harris of the Green Bay Packers. But McMahon's not an all-time great. He was one of the all-time great characters ever to play in the league. But you look at the Bears, they just haven't gotten it right. Mitch Trubisky, who's now in the Bills, was the number two overall pick didn't get it right then. Will they get it right this time? And I actually really like Justin Fields. I like what he's shown in big time games at Ohio state. I thought he was outstanding in 2019 struggled last year in a couple big games against good defenses, but then I'll play Trevor Lawrence in the playoff and, and I'll played him easily. So I think there's a lot there, and I think Bears fans may finally have found their right guy. And as the draft was going on, you wondered, is New England going to trade up and get a quarterback? Mac Jones had been compared to Brady by some people, and I find that ludicrous. Mac Jones, a one-year starter, good player at Alabama, certainly. But you're comparing him to the guy who's won seven Super Bowls and is – easily the greatest quarterback of all time, stop. And, and with New England getting him, you now have that comparison that is going to go on for a long time. Look, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick are friends. They communicate a lot. 
I guarantee Belichick knew more about Mac Jones through Nick Saban than any other team, GM, coach had even come close to digging deep. And the fact that he fell to them at 15, they didn't have to trade up to get him, changes the way you look at it. Because if you'd given up a lot of draft capital to move up to get Mac Jones, then you kind of think, ah, is this a reach? Well, the fact he fell to him, you almost have to take him there. You need a quarterback. Cam Newton, I believe, his arm, his shoulder isn't the same as it used to be, and it, it just inhibits him of playing the position the way he used to. A solid leader, and I think that's a good thing for Mac Jones to see how Cam has won over the locker room there. I, I just think you'll see the season start with Cam Newton as your starter. By week six, Mac Jones is in there. So the five quarterbacks are the story of this draft. The player of this draft may turn out to be Kyle Pitts. At number four, he went to Atlanta. Atlanta has Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones at the wideout position. Now, Julio very well may be traded after June 6th, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's the case. He's tradable after the June deadline because of and dead cap space that's going to affect them. So Kyle Pitts comes in at tight end, a generational talent, a guy who many people think is the best tight end prospect in decades. I think he gives them something else. So you still have two great weapons for Matt Ryan, even if you lose the great Julio Jones. If you keep Julio Jones, it makes it almost impossible the the defenses of the Falcons to continue to to play defense. So it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. Again, if Julio's there, those three guys, who do you double? You can't. You, You have to play zone and hope for the best. Cincinnati went Jamar Chase at five wide receiver. Many people thought they should have gone Perry Sewell, but remember, they have Jonah Williams, who was a top pick a couple of years ago out of Alabama at one tackle. Brian Belaga comes in as a free agent. They fixed the tackle position. So all the people saying they should have taken Panay Suell from Oregon, he would have been moved inside. And I don't think that was a smart move. I think getting Chase, you move him into a situation where they have T. Higgins still from last year who showed really good things in his rookie year. You're giving Joey Burrow an opportunity to succeed. Yes, the offensive line needs to get better, but it needs to get better on the interior, and hopefully later in the draft they did that. I said before the draft there were three teams that are going to either make or break this draft. The first one's the Jaguars because they had the most draft capital. Getting Trevor Lawrence was a no-brainer. Coming back with Travis Etienne, when you've already got James Robinson, a running back, was a little surprising to me. But at the same time, it gives you another excellent skill position player to go with your new franchise quarterback. I think that was one of those moves that you look at and you think, okay, they have a plan. They know what they're doing. The third pick they took was a cornerback out of Georgia, and I like that pick as well because – You've got to balance it out. 
the Jags are a project that's going to take time. Urban Meyer is going to take some lumps because all college coaches do when they go from college to the pros. But he's going to get it done, I feel. I think they're going to be a playoff team in a couple of years with Urban Meyer and with Trevor Lawrence. So I, I like what the Jags did. The second team I talked about ruling this draft was going to be the Jets. I love the second pick. They trade up. They get the best guard in the draft, Alavera Tucker, the kid from USC, who's just a beast. I USC fan, so I watch a lot of USC football. This kid is an absolute stud. Last year, Joe Douglas took Guy Becton, a monster left tackle. You put Tucker next to him, and it is going to be an excellent side of the line of scrimmage for the Jets for years to come. Really like that. They had a ton of draft capital, so spending it to come up and get a specific piece that immediately makes your team better, I like that. And then the running back they took out of North Carolina, they did take two kids named Michael Carter, but the running back, Michael Carter, out of North Carolina, I think he's a Darren Sproles-type player, and I say that with the highest of praise. Sproles, undersized, you don't use him as an every-down back, but, man, can he make an impact on a game? And I think that Michael Carter can be the same type of player. Now, the Jets' draft is going to be decided, like I said, on Zach Wilson. If he hits, this is an excellent draft. If not, it's still a very good draft because of the pieces they added later on. And then the third team who controlled the draft – with the Miami Dolphins, and frankly, I really liked what the Dolphins did. Jalen Waddell, I thought, was the second-best wide receiver in the draft, and he was selected as the second wide receiver in the draft. I think he's going to be very good for Tua. They know each other, obviously, from the days at Alabama. I think Waddell steps right in and makes an impact. The best edge rusher in the draft was Jalen Phillips from Miami. Gregory Rousseau's teammate, better player, better pick, in my opinion, in the draft. Good move by the Dolphins using their second pick there. And then the third pick that I really liked from the Dolphins was Liam Eikenberg, tackle out of Notre Dame. You start to look around the NFL and you look at Notre Dame offensive linemen and how they transition from what Brian Kelly is doing at Notre Dame to the NFL game, and guys like Quentin Nelson and Zach Martin are the best two guards in the NFL. You look at McGlinchey out in San Francisco, what he's become. Notre Dame offensive linemen under Brian Kelly have transitioned to the NFL at an unbelievable success rate. I expect Eichenberg to do the same. So really good stuff, in my opinion, by the three teams that the draft was going to be run by. Losers in the draft. Seattle only had three total picks. So they're clearly the team that did the least to help themselves. Here's another loser in the draft, if you ask me, the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys had 11 picks. They spent 11 on defense in large part because their defense was historically bad last year. The first pick was 
Mike Parsons, linebacker from Penn State, freak athlete. Dude runs a 4-3 and is sideline to sideline linebacker. Could be a great player. Will have to be a great player for the simple fact that the Cowboys now have three very high picks invested at linebacker, and two of them are going to be gone after this year. Parsons is a number one pick, a first-round pick. Leighton Vander Esch, whose option was declined yesterday, was a first-round pick. Good player, can't stay on the field. Jalen Smith was a second-round pick. Nobody else would have taken him in the top five rounds, but Jerry Jones did, and has been a solid player, but again, somebody who's likely to be gone after this year, which leaves Parsons as the one linebacker standing. When you look at what the Cowboys did, they reacted to last year. Good teams, follow your draft board, and don't draft for need, draft off your draft board. You're much less likely to miss on a pick when you follow your draft board than you are when you draft for need because you're jumping up and taking a player that's not as highly ranked as the pick you're taking. The Cowboys did that eight times through the course of the weekend. Late in the draft, they spent some capital on offensive linemen. If you remember what happened last year, not only was Dak Prescott hurt, Travis Frederick, who was an all-pro center, retired last year, leaving a hole at center. Then you had their two tackles, Tyron Smith, who's been great but can't stay on the field anymore because of his age, and Lael Collins, who's very good, but missed all of last year. And they did not have depth to, to withstand those injuries. Even Zach Martin got hurt as the year went along. They're great guard. So the offensive line, which has talented pieces and no depth, didn't get any depth. I, I look at this draft as a colossal failure for the Dallas Cowboys, and it reminded me of a draft that they had a few years back that two years after the draft, none of the players from that draft were still in the league. They drafted for need that year, too. Just not a good thing. Raiders are always going to do what the Raiders do. Taking Alex Leatherwood in the first round wasn't as big of a reach as many people felt it was. But here's the thing. At 17, Leatherwood might have been a little higher. He was the guy the Raiders wanted, and some say he's the best run blocker in this draft. I think that Alabama offensive linemen generally don't become great, become good pros. And to take him at 17, I thought that was a little high. But the Raiders are, are, are a team of conviction. They have a conviction towards a player, and they pick that player. So what Gruden's done, and you know, here we are now, year five of the Gruden experiment. I think it's time for Gruden to show that he's worth the $100 million he's getting. I don't know that they've made the strides that Mark Davis thought they'd make when he brought John Gruden out of retirement. Sorry, only six more years on that $100 million contract. And I put the Patriots in as a draft team that didn't do well. Now, I said Mac Jones going to the Patriots without them trading up was a good thing, and I do believe that. 
I don't know that Mac Jones is going to become a good starting quarterback in the league. He's 23 years old, one year of starting experience. And a lot of the draft class is going to be predicated on the success or failure of Mac Jones. But with the second pick, Belichick went back to Alabama and he took Christian Barrymore. Barrymore is the best interior D-line prospect in this draft. And New England trades up in the second round to take him. Here's the problem with Barrymore. And Alabama's depth is legendary, as this draft showed. But Barrymore only played 38% of the snaps last year at Alabama. If he was such a dominant force in the interior of the D-line, why would he play the 60% that other guys who have been through that program in recent years have played? Maybe because he's got attitude problems. Maybe because there's something there. Now, again, this is Saban and Belichick. And Belichick trusting Saban on this, trading up to get this kid. But Barrymore was in Saban's doghouse for four years at Alabama. I'm not sure he's going to be able to transition to the NFL without bringing some of the baggage he had at Alabama with him. And again, it's conflicting to me because I I know that Belichick and Saban are tight. I know that Belichick knows everything about Christian Barrymore, but I think talent went out here. And sometimes when talent wins out, it ends up going sideways. And I could see that happening with Christian Barrymore. So I didn't really love what the Patriots did. So that's a little draft recap for you. Major League Baseball, if you listened to me a couple weeks ago when everyone was freaking out about the Yankees, I said the Yankees will be back to 500 in their next 13 games. Guess what? Those 13 games have now passed. The Yankees sit at 14 and 14. They're back to 500. The schedule got easy. They took advantage of the easy schedule and got it done. And when you're getting production from your big bats, and the Yankees have been getting production from their big bats, it's going to work out that way. Aaron Judge now up to seven home runs. He has 18 RBIs. Giancarlo Stanton has six home runs and 15 RBIs. The most important stat isn't that stat. It's that Judge has played 25 of 28 games, and Stanton has played 24 of 28 games. If you're going to get help from those guys, they're going to produce. They're too good of players to not produce. The Yankees have gotten much better throughout the lineup, with the exception of Aaron Hicks. Aaron Hicks is just not a good baseball player. He hasn't gotten it done. Gary Sanchez isn't either, but they moved on from him. And Higashaga, I can't even say his name, Higgy, is a much better catcher and a much better fit for this team. Glaber Torres has leveled off. The defense hasn't been a factor, and his offense has come up. It's not where it needs to be. Still looking for its first home run of the year. But it's, it's getting there. Gio Urshela has been what Gio Urshela has always been as a Yankee, just solid. So 
the team has grown. It's gotten better. There's still some rough parts. I, I don't know what to make of Clint Frazier. I thought if you played Frazier, he would be solid. It just hasn't happened. I, I don't know if it's time to give up on the kid, but at this point, Brett Gardner is still probably a better option than Clint Frazier is. And I, I can't believe I'm saying that because I'm a Frazier guy. I think the more important part, though, is the starting pitching has leveled off. Corey Kluber, who pitched Sunday, had another really good outing. He's now 2-2 two and two with a 3.03 ERA, giving a solid number two behind Garrett Cole. You look at the last couple starts from Herman and, and Jameson Tyone, they have improved as well. So the pitching has come along. Yankee fans, I always said this when, when I did my radio show, and Mariano Rivera would do what Mariano Rivera and only Mariano Rivera would do. I said, Yankee fans, someday you're going to realize just how spoiled you've been because Mo isn't a typical closer. Typical closers struggle every now and then. Mo never did. Just one, two, three every night. Put it in the books. All good. Aroldis Chapman has been a very good closer for the Yankees for a long time. He ended up leaving for a minute and bringing back talent, obviously, when he left and he won a World Series with the Cubs and then comes back on a big contract. Well, this may be as good a version of Aroldis Chapman as we've seen, and his numbers so far have just been ridiculous. Ten innings pitched. He's given up two hits and five walks. I'm sorry, two hits and three walks. Five base runners so far in 10 innings. No runs. And he struck out 24 of the 30 outs that he has had. It's truly remarkable. 75% of his outs have been, I'm sorry, 66% of his outs have been via the strikeout. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy how good he's been. He's developed a split finger, and it's made him even more unhittable. It's just one of those things with without the depth right now in that bullpen that they, they have because of injuries. He has been just a, a solid, great closer. He comes in, it is over. And dare I say... He's been Mariano-esque so far the first month of the season. Again, Yankees back to 500. They now face a pretty tough stretch over the next few. They got the the Astros coming in to the stadium tonight, start a three-game series, then the Nationals, then they go to Tampa for three. So they're going forward, but they're not going to get on a run yet because of the schedule. Again, they'll stay around 500. But by mid-June, watch. This team's going to be close to 10 games over 500. That's my Yankee prediction. Shohei Otani has been fun to watch. Now, on a team that has the best player in baseball, Mike Trout, the Angels still probably not a playoff team. But Otani, what he's doing is really special. Nine home runs, 22 RBIs in the first month of the season. Tied for the major league lead there, 959 OPS at the plate. Then you look what he's done on the mound. 
He's 1-0 with a 3-2-9 ERA in his three starts, 13.2 innings pitched, 23 strikeouts. Now, he's got 13 walks, and you got to figure that out, and you got to do better with the walks. But when we're talking about a guy being a dominant pitcher and being a dominant hitter at the same time, it, it just has not happened probably since Babe Ruth. And I, I don't compare people to Babe Ruth, and I'm not comparing Shohei Otani to Babe Ruth. But this is something we haven't seen. And frankly, we may not see for a long time. And I, I don't know injury-wise where this goes. He's coming back from Tommy John, so there'll be limitations on his innings for sure. But what, what this kid is doing is remarkable, and it's unprecedented in the last – hundred years for anyone to have done what he's doing at a high level the way he's doing it the best part of baseball this week involved two of my favorite players and two of the best first basemen in the game freddie freeman and anthony rizzo these two guys are great players they're also great ambassadors for the game and they happen to be great friends a couple weeks ago the teams were playing the braves and cubs there was a rundown. Rizzo's yelling Frederick as he's chasing Freddie Freeman down. Just a great sound clip. But I don't know that you'll see a better moment on the baseball field than this. No, I was on the on-deck circle, and uh, you know, I have a straight shot to Freddie. And uh, I was kind of loosening my arm up, and I go, I want you pointing at him. He was staring at me when he was warming up. It, it was just so hard. Uh, Freddie was hot, four for four, but at the end of the day, he was four for five with a punch out. And, um, you know, I, I was able to hit Alex 64 mile an hour curveball. I couldn't hit Rizzo's 61 mile an hour curveball. So it, it was a little bit under my hitting speed, but, uh, you know, that's, you know, he'll, he'll have that over me forever now, unfortunately. We'll always have that, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> he'll have that over my head forever, but. Uh, that was one strikeout I'm okay with because that, that was uh, it, it was fun. So much credit to Freddie and how much fun he has playing this game, uh, you know, being in that moment too and having fun with it. You know, this is try to have fun as much as you can in this game. You don't know how long it's going to last. It's just what the game is about. I mean, when you, I grew up in a small town. We, the Little League teams that we played on we went to school with every kid in our little league so we knew everybody and it was like that where you're batting off of your best friend or or kid you're in class with and you know and the next day if you got a hit you talked about how you got a hit off if you struck out he talked about how you struck out it was kind of the way it was in a small town we're talking about major league baseball and two of the best first baseman in the game. Freddie Freeman and and Anthony Rizzo are going to be friends for life. And 20 years from now, the two of them are going to be sitting in a bar having a beer. And Rizzo's going to continually talk shit about, hey, remember when I struck you out? Uh, This one's on you because I struck you out. It's going to be nonstop. There's going to be texts like out of the blue, hey, remember when I struck you out? And send that video. And the fact that Freddie Freeman 
just started laughing because he knew. At that moment, he knew for the rest of his time he was going to hear about that. It was just a great moment in baseball. And to me, it's one of those things that makes that game special because in a concept of a team game, it's a one-on-one event, pitcher versus batter. And there's a lot of emotion there. But when you have guys who get it, and those two guys get it, it, it's special. And, And that just, to me, was one of the best things I've ever seen on a baseball field. And, and I, again, too bad, Freddie, because you're going to end up hearing about it forever. And if I was Rizzo, I would never stop talking to him about it. Never. So good stuff there. Last night in Buffalo, something happened that I don't think anybody saw coming. The Sabres have had just injury after injury with the goalie position. And, they're down to a kid by the name of Michael Hauser. And I say kid, he's a 28-year-old man. Michael Hauser, one of the big things you always hear in hockey is, you know, you get the men's league guy or the Zamboni driver. This is a backup men's league guy. Michael Hauser has played in the East Coast League for eight and a half years. He's played two games, I think, above the East Coast League, but he Continues to grind it out. Credit to him. Well, last night he gets his NHL debut against the Islanders, a very good team. He stops 22 of 24 shots. Sabres played very good around him, and they win the game 4-2. to two. And this kid, this guy who nobody had, he's like seventh on the goalie depth chart to begin the year. He gets a win in his NHL debut, and it's just a really, really cool story. Happy for the guy, happy for the franchise that they finally get a feel-good story. There's been a lot of them. You know, you look at this year with the Sabres, and obviously things have not gone well. They've gotten better under Don Granado, but you've done this without Jack Eichel. There's rumors about Eichel that, you know, where he's going to be at when he does come back and rejoin his team next year. If he comes back and rejoins the team, if they don't move on from him because of a trade or something, there's a lot swirling around Jack Eichel. I'll just say it that way. You wonder where this team goes from here, but for one night, it was a great story, and it was great for the Sabres to have that story. Very happy for them. There's another great story that has a Sabre tint to it. Ryan Miller has announced his retirement. He is a 19-year veteran of the NHL and is going to retire at year-end. How well-respected is Ryan Miller? In a recent game against the Kings, after the game, this happened. Check it out. And they're all there to give Ryan Miller a tap on the pads and congratulate him on a Hall of Fame career. Yep, a receiving line, if you will, of Los Angeles Kings. And you can say freeway face-off all you want, but this says respect. Ange Kopitar, the longtime Kings captain at the front of the line. Dustin Brown, a teammate 
in international competition on Team USA. I know they know one another well, but maybe not as well as these two. Jonathan Quick and Miller, both goaltenders on the 2010 and 2014 U.S. Olympic teams. That's one of the things we love about this sport. You know, the guys leave it all, all out on the ice. But in moments like this, you know, the true character is shown. Well, you, you saw Brendan Lemieux have an extended conversation. They had a moment in the second period of this game. But this moment is all about Ryan Miller. It's funny, John, you know, when I've said this before, when Ryan announced he was going to retire at the end of the year, I, I was surprised that he did it. His former Ducks assistant, Trent Yanni, saying hello. To be respected by your teammates is important. To be respected by the fans and the media is important. To be respected by your opponents, that's the ultimate. And Ryan Miller right there, it just showed. For the Kings to do that, a classy move by them. But it just shows the respect the league has for Ryan Miller. And Ryan Miller, above all else in his NHL career, is a Buffalo Sabre. He spent 11 of his 19 years with the Sabres. He's their all-time win leader. And you, know, you think about that, you start talking about Sabre goalies and in the history of the franchise, there's been some great ones. None greater, obviously, than Dominic Hasek, who was one of the greatest goalies in the history of the league. Ryan Miller had more wins than Dom, 50 more wins than Dom. He also had a 916 save percentage. Dom's was 926. Not that much better. 258 goals against for Ryan Miller as a member of the Sabres, 222. For Dominic Hasek. No, look, Hasek was the better Sabre goalie. But the fact I'm even putting Ryan Miller's numbers up against Hasek shows how good Ryan Miller was as a member of the Sabres. And to me, the Sabres need to do something here that stands out. They, they need that one-day contract. Let Ryan Miller retire as a member of the Sabres, and retire his jersey, hang it in the rafters. There's not a lot of good recent history with this franchise, obviously. Ryan Miller, is the, he's going to be a Hall of Famer, I believe, and when he is, he should go in as a member of the Sabres. So you start to look at this, and I think there's something there that the Sabres, again, build off of the positives where they are. There are some positives in this awful season that they're having. So a goalie last night who was a Zamboni driver, or not really, but might as well have been, gets a win. Ryan Miller, walk it away. Honor Ryan Miller. Syracuse University lost another basketball player this past week when Quincy Gurrier announced that he's either turning pro or transferring from the orange. That marks the sixth of 
the top nine players from last year will now be gone. Marek Dolezal is going to play pro ball in Europe. He's gone. Kadari Richmond to Seton Hall. Robert Braswell, Alan Griffin, Woody Newton, John Ball, Jacques, and now Quincy Gurrier. It's going to be a rebuilding year next year for the Orange. The backcourt is back with Buddy Beheim and, of course, Joe Girard. Cole Swider and Jimmy Beheim come in as transfers to make an immediate impact. And the recruit Benny Williams coming in will have a huge impact on next season. It's a little disappointing that Gurrier is gone because I think if he came back, he would have had a big impact on next year's team. But it's not surprising. He has an opportunity to go. And for everybody who's going to look at Quincy Gurrier and say he's not ready, the same thing was said a couple years ago about O'Shea Brissett. O'Shea Brissett left after his sophomore year, was a second-round draft pick. People said it's a foolish mistake. Well, Shea Brissett just signed a three-year deal with the Indiana Pacers. He's going to be set for life financially if he takes care of his money because he's got plenty of it. He also has been putting up double-doubles as a member of the Pacers, a good team, by the way, in the NBA. And he's becoming a starter on some nights. I think Quincy Gurrier can do the same type of thing. So don't hate on a kid for trying to better themselves. The program will be fine. It'll be what it is. But don't start with the he's not ready, he shouldn't have come out, because you want him to stay. He's got to make the right decision. And I hope he did. I hope he made the right decision. I hope he gets drafted. If he ends up transferring, that'll be a little bit more disappointing than if he goes in the draft. But this Orange team has a lot of work to do to rebuild. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.